It is, it is good to be here, and uh, we are continuing in our study through First Samuel, and we'll begin with prayer this morning, and as we do that, um, I think one of the things we can pray for is our, our mountain communities out in Southern California, I'm sure other areas too, but um, I know my sister and brother-in-law, I was sharing with someone this morning, they haven't been home for over like a week and a half, they live in Crestline. Um, I have two grocery stores now. The one in Crestline is is gone. The one in Blue Jay, they've red tagged it. So, um, you know, they they, they <laughs> it's not like there's multiple options up there, and obviously people can't get in and out of their homes. So, we're able to come together and and worship. I'm guessing multiple churches from Crestline to Big Bear, maybe Wrightwood too. I'm not sure. Probably they're not able to gather. So, um, so let's pray for them and uh, the National Guard and others that are helping uh, them dig out from underneath the snow. I'll ask the Lord to uh, meet us here and speak to us. So, Father, as we begin our time, Lord, we do want to pray for our friends, God, um, out that way and just ask, Lord, that you would provide, Lord, you would help them, God, with with the basics, Lord, um, groceries and getting in and out of their homes and to work, Lord. People that are, are maybe elderly or have uh, health issues that are limited with mobility, um, this is just, uh, it's, it's, it's a big problem. So we pray that you give wisdom to the leaders out there in San Bernardino County that are trying to um, navigate this, and we just pray for your grace. We pray for your blessing on your people, Lord, and, and the churches, God. We, we've had to be creative with, with worship over the last few years, a couple times. And so um, I pray that, Lord, you would uh, bless and help them through this now, Lord. And Father, as we're here gathered together, God, opening up your word, we pray that, Father, you would, you would cause, Lord, our hearts to be open to receive the things that you would want to show us, what you want to say to us today, God. We've come into this place with, Lord, each individually, God, our, our own issues, Lord, we're coming from our own struggles, problems, maybe strengths, but you have something to say to us, Lord, your, your word, God, it's, it's living and active, it's sharper than, uh, Lord, than, than a two-edged sword, God, and uh, all scripture, it's, it's given by you, Lord, for, um, for our edification, that we might be built up, that we might grow. So I pray that that would happen here in this place, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak. We're asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Frankie mentioned, by the way, those of you in the um, overflow room, the live feed, um, God bless you. We're glad that you're there. I'm not sure how many people are there today. Last week, there were about 20 people over there. Um, we were on the edge with opening up the garage door. Next week, if it doesn't rain, we'll be open again. But it was just kind of right in that zone of, of cold. It's, this is kind of always in the, in the cold time of year or hot. Um, just plan to bring a jacket or wear flip-flops in the summer because it's just um, the imperfections of our building for right now. But um, when, when the weather's extreme, we try to compensate. At any rate, we're glad that you're here worshiping with us despite that. Uh, today's verses... Part one of the infamous battle between David and Goliath communicate in many ways the, the ultimate, it's the ultimate illustration of our own struggles in life, particularly uh, with foes and pitfalls, the vices against which we are hopelessly out 
outnumbered, fights that we just can't win on our own. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're looking at the first half of this chapter. It's, it's 50 some odd verses and we just can't do that all in one Sunday morning service. So we'll be looking at verses 1 through 30 and our message is titled, Facing Your Enemy. But with that title, I, I want to add a little bit of a caveat so that we don't read that and think, well, I don't have any enemies. No, what we're really talking about is, is, well, it may be actually something you do consider an enemy, but it could also be a struggle, a problem, something that you're wrestling with, something that has been characterized in your life by, by failure or, or it's causing you to be overwhelmed. As we make our way through this chapter, this week and next, hopefully we'll gain some insights as to how God would have us to make our way through these battles that we all deal with. Some of them are short-term, some of them, they're more long-term. How you and I can face those, quote, enemies or Goliaths uh, and, and, and obstacles that, that threaten us threaten to overwhelm us and drive us to defeat, that we might maybe do better in areas where we're currently failing. So we'll start this morning with verses 1 through 7. If you grab the outline on your way in and you're taking notes or following along, the first point, of course, you know, is a really big problem, which is exactly what the armies of Israel and King Saul have on their hands. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Socho, which, is belong, uh, which belongs to Judah. Uh, they encamped between Socho and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So, of course, we're in the Old Testament. We're studying the, the very beginning of, of what's called the kingdom age for the nation of Israel. They, they've just been given their first king ever, and his name is Saul. And in the infancy of this kingdom, they have uh, these foes, the Philistines, and, and really this is... Um, represents kind of this epic struggle between the children of Israel and the Philistines who will come up multiple times in the Old Testament. In this chapter, we find this, this conflict unfolding in an area that we've just read. It's called the Valley of Elah. And between, it's between these two settlements, specifically where the battle's taking place, between Socho and Azekah. Socho is, um, is south and west a little bit in this valley on a hill, and Azekah is to the west and north a little bit on the opposite side. It's about 20 miles west of Bethlehem or Jerusalem. Although at that time, remember, Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel yet. It was inhabited by a people called the Jebusites. But the Valley of Elah, it's, it's in the midst of rolling hills. These aren't big mountains. These are more just sort of gentle hills. So there's this little valley in between. And if you go to Israel today, some of you have been, you can travel to this very spot and, and see it. Well, the Philistines, they're on the one side. Israel, they've made their encampment opposite on the other the Philistines were interested in this area because it was particularly strategic. This, this was a, a, a spot along the way 
of, of sort of what we might call a main highway that led from the coastal area inland to, to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and other areas. So this was, this was a particularly important artery for travel, and the Philistines saw this, no doubt, as a way where in conquering that, they could have a greater foothold over the nation as a whole. Right away, uh, we learn that these, uh, th- these armies um, faced uh, one against another as they prepared to fight, because, of course, Israel is going to oppose the Philistines in trying to take this strategic area. Well, a champion, a warrior, a huge man, a giant, we might say, representing the Philistines, he sort of pushes out past the Philistine line of soldiers, and he comes out and taunts and threatens Israel as they prepare to fight one another. He's threatening Israel, and he's demanding a fight. Verse 4, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So the two armies, they're gathered together, they're ready to fight one another, and then this extra big guy, Goliath, comes out and basically says, Uh, Look, uh, I want to fight against just one man of Israel, and and our fight will be representative for both of our nations. Whoever wins, the other nation has to become the servants of the other. And that'd be scary, of course. Who's going to want to go up against a giant, particularly this one? Goliath was from Gath, which was one of the main, the, the five main cities of the Philistines, and Gath was only a few miles further west from where this battle took place. His, his description is, is impressive. Most of us remember, if we grew up in church, the stories of David and Goliath. Um, the idea of him being a, a giant, it's known to most of us But what do we mean and what is the Bible saying when it speaks of Goliath? Was he like 15 feet tall? I mean, was is this, you know, some kind of like Greek mythology thing? Some of us might be thinking of that. Is this like Jack and the Beanstalk or the the BFG? Is, Is it like, you know, a crazy big giant? Is that what's happening here? Well, we're told in verse four that he was six cubits and a span. Now a cubit was measured from the elbow out to the tip of the middle finger, and a span was from the end of the pinky to the end of the thumb, which obviously from person to person, that's going to be a little bit different depending on the size of the person, but most Bible teachers and scholars agree that this was somewhere between nine feet tall and a couple of inches and possibly as much as nine feet and ten inches. Joshua chapter 11 verse uh, 22 records that Uh, the city that Goliath was from, Gath, that at that time, when Israel first came into the land, that at that time it was known to have giants. And that was a couple of hundred years before where we're at now, but it seems that there were a few left, or at least one family. Briefly, again, some might read this or hear this and think that this is kind of fanciful, like, wait a minute, pastor, you're trying to tell me this was a real giant. Uh, But I want to remind us that even in our our present day or in modern day, there are exceptionally and have been exceptionally tall people. Uh, The Guinness Book of World Records records that Robert Wadlow, born in 1918, reached a height of 8 feet and 11 inches. Can you believe that? 8 feet, 11 inches. I should have, like, you know, drawn We're going to say it's as tall as that speaker. I don't know for sure. But um, I know it's taller than me because I'm short. But... um, 
If you didn't know that, the stage kind of makes me feel a little taller, but I'm not. But anyway, today the tallest man is uh, Sultan Kusen from Turkey. He's 8 feet 2.8 inches. Now, both of these, though, they're really not great examples of what we're talking about because they owed their height to um, pituitary and human growth hormone issues, and uh, their height was actually problematic. They had health problems as a result, but they were really big guys. The, the second man, Sultan, he's still alive, actually, um, living in Turkey, as I mentioned. But other healthy and modern examples exist of both very tall and very short people, both ends of the spectrum, the pygmies of Africa, a people group whose genetics have been isolated. They're all exceptionally small. Um, Guinness Book of World Records also records there's a family by the last name Trap here in the U.S. The average height is not less than six foot seven inches. They also predominantly have twins that run in the family, kind of interesting, um, but just exceptionally big people. I think about Shaquille O'Neal, all right? He's not nine feet tall, there wasn't. Seven feet, one inch. Uh, at one point, he was 324 pounds, and I, I point him out because it's easy to look at the really tall guys that had health issues and think, well, they're not going to fight a battle. Some of them had to walk with, like, crutches and stuff. They had issues. But then you have a guy who we would call a modern-day giant, you know, Shaq, who was very capable, you know, a huge NBA career, et cetera, et cetera. Could have been a, you know, soldier, I would imagine. Goliath would have been much bigger, a couple feet taller than Shaq and at least 100 pounds bigger, and also strong and capable of fighting. This exceptionally large warrior had to be properly outfitted for battle. Verse 5 reads, He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 100 125 pounds. Today, soldiers, uh, not when they're actually fighting, but when they're moving into battle, they'll carry packs anywhere from 60 to 100 pounds. So this wouldn't have been that big of a deal for Goliath. Uh, but he had um, mail or chain mail that he wore, sort of that inner looped um, uh, mesh that would have guarded him against arrows and swords. Verse 6, he had a bronze armor. He had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his, his shoulders. So he has these shin guards made of bronze and uh, this javelin between his shoulders. Verse 7, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. A weaver's beam. I think about my wife's grandma. She was a quilter. I don't know if anybody quilts out here. But part of her setup was this big, long, wooden dowel. And I would imagine it's similar to that for a weaver. And at the end, there was this, um, there was this, this head that was about 15 pounds, which is the weight of you know, an average bowling ball. Um, he had a shield bearer that went before him. So one who stood before him and had this large shield providing extra cover and additional, an additional set of eyes against the enemy. The bottom line is that Goliath was really big and he was strong. He was heavily armed. This sounds like a situation that called for the, the biggest and the tallest warrior in all of Israel who we know was King Saul. Where's the king? Well, he's not facing the enemy, that's for sure. Now, chapter 7 is first and foremost the account of David facing this 
Philistine giant Goliath. One man, the, the anointed but unknown king of Israel, standing and trusting, knowing that God was greater than the enemy, believing that since God was for him, none could be against him. This really, uh, chapter 17, it's the record of David's rise to notoriety as a leader and a warrior in Israel. But we know that there's also a lesson here a picture or an illustration of how God wants to work in your lives and mine, that we might live in victory over our enemies, whenever or whatever they might be, as well as in God's best and his calling on our lives. Now, most of us are not going to encounter an actual giant in our lives, are we? Although one time I was with my family at Ikea and I, I swear there was this man who had to be more than seven feet tall. I have still never seen a man that tall. As he walked through, he had to like duck his head down a little bit as they went from you know section to section. You've been in Ikea. Uh, I literally took my kids because I'm a pastor and I wanted to like help reinforce to them, there are big people in the world, bigger than normal. And I, want, I showed them. He was so tall, you could see that he probably hunched a little bit because he felt awkward about it. So he was sort of, but, but he was healthy, super big. And um, I think all he was doing was looking for a futon, not a fight. But anyway, um, what giants do we face today? Not this unmanned name from Ikea, but what problems are we up against that seem bigger than our ability to fight on our own. What enemy are you and I facing today? I think of addiction, temptation, bills that we can't pay, bullies and intimidation, peer pressure, regret, our past failure, sin and condemnation, fear and attack from Satan and our own flesh. Things like where we feel like we're out on the battlefield and we're facing, it's just this insurmountable enemy. Those are the enemies that we're talking about. The, the question is, are we overly focused on that opposition, on the struggle like Saul, or are we looking to our deliverer like we'll see that David is? Too many times as Christians, we allow ourselves to live under a mentality that assumes sin and failure are inevitable, unavoidable. We, in fact, call ourselves sinners, which I understand, but remember, the Bible, in fact, calls us saints. That is our identity in Christ. We live in a defeated mentality rolling over before the Goliaths in our lives without even trying, not believing that victory is possible. And if we're honest with ourselves, often we do that because it's just easier than fighting. Paul writes very clearly about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. He writes, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, Romans 6, these verses, they focus more theologically on our struggle with sin as we're talking about uh, Goliath in, the, in our lives in the sense of a metaphor. What's, what's fascinating 
is that the language Paul uses and what he's challenging us with, what God by his Spirit is saying, is this notion that we have an element of choice involved. How often do we struggle or battle with sin in particular? Or struggles or weaknesses, failure. And really our mindset and our approach is is one of defeat before the battle ever begins. It's just inevitable that I'm going to give in, that I'm going to fail. There's this notion here, there's this idea that there is choice that's to be involved and employed, that, that we actually can exercise a degree of control, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the point is, our will needs to be in cooperation with God's will and calling for our lives. What God wants to do by His Spirit in our lives. We're talking about sanctification. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, I... For some of you, you may read that and go, well, that's obvious. I knew that. For others, it may be a little bit revolutionary. I remember it was for me the first time I sat under a teaching and understood this passage. If you find yourself this morning in a pattern, trapped, caught in a cycle of sin, think about it. Whatever you submit yourself to, you're going to be a slave to that thing. Are you caught in sin? Well, think about what action and choices you are making to submit yourself to it. You're exposing yourself to temptation. You're feeding that lust in your life. You're refusing to pull back from it, and instead of sowing to the flesh, sow to the Spirit. So, of course, you're going to be trapped in the way that you are. But God be thanked, verse 17 that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When we wake up every day, when we walk through the course of the day and we submit our lives to God, when we say, Jesus, my life belongs to you, I want to serve and follow you, we are declaring, I am a slave of righteousness not a slave to sin, not a slave to my flesh, not a slave to my appetites or the past, but God, I belong to you. Now, are, are we saying we're never going to fall or falter? No, of course not. But if we're going to grow and if we're going to experience freedom, we have to live like those who are free. And as we do so and we trust God for the victory and as we walk in the Spirit, we'll find a greater degree of freedom than we've previously known. The question, as it relates to this issue of victory over sin and Satan and even other foes that we face in this life, is who are you and I serving? What are we surrendering to? God or the enemy, the spirit or the flesh? John chapter 8, verse 34, Pastor Frankie spoke to this in worship this morning. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, I think as we look at 1 Samuel 17, and, and we'll have a better, um, broader view after next week, but when we step back and look at Saul's approach to Goliath and the Philistines versus David's 
approach, there's a contrast between one man who was given to sin and another who wanted to serve and live surrendered to God, David. Freedom and victory are what you and I are called to. David will have a lot to teach us. But we'll also learn from Israel and her armies. They they were afraid, as was their king Saul. They lived like slaves of the Philistines. They feared confronting the enemy when God had called them to victory. I think Saul was so out of touch with who God had called him to, where he had called him to in life, that he he was completely incapable of leading in the way that he should have been. If we're going to live in freedom, we have to stand and face the enemy or the struggles, knowing the victory is already ours, that we don't have to bow to sin and failure, that it doesn't have to have dominion over us, that in Christ we are free indeed. We can choose to trust God and walk in obedience to his word, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to equip us to walk in the light, living in the light of these realities like David, as we'll find. Now, things start to heat up in verses 8 through 11. Our second point this morning, taunted by the enemy, as Israel will be by Goliath. Verse 8, then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, you read those verses, and right away you recognize Goliath is not afraid, but Israel is. And it's entirely possible that Goliath has never lost a fight in his life. That's possible. He may well have an undefeated record. But what does he have to fear, frankly? Not a whole lot, not not anything, really, in Israel or her king. Goliath, he's taunting them, he's mocking Israel, which is going to get worse in part two of chapter 17. But he challenges them, and he has this idea. He says, why not just send one soldier to fight me? And whoever wins and gains the victory uh, for their entire army, that's what will happen, and and they'll become the servants of the other. That's kind of what he proposes, which um, I guess Israel doesn't have a choice whether or not they're going to Um, agree or not. It's just sort of sad, and nobody has the bravery to answer this Philistine. He knew Israel had no soldier comparable to him, let alone willing to fight him, but he taunted and threatened them nonetheless. And verse 16 is going to tell us that this goes on for 40 days. This wasn't just once. This was more than a month. Every day, the armies would kind of get up and get close enough to, to yell at each other, and then Goliath pushes out to the front and yells this threat at them. It appears that David shows up toward the end of this daily haranguing, maybe near the end of the 40 days. So, understanding that there are parallels here for our own experience in facing off with enemies and obstacles in our own lives, how should we respond to attacks, to lies, 
and to threats because Saul seems to do nothing. And his enemies, uh, his armies rather, are cowering in fear. So what should we do? Especially in situations where our problem is a person because most of us in our lives, we have at least one person who is a problem for us. Maybe we wouldn't characterize it as as big and bad as a, a Goliath situation, but there, there's something like that in our lives. Goliath, of course, represented spiritual realities. And while we, we know that we don't fight against flesh and blood, practically speaking, how do we, though, handle those people problems that are right in front of us? Of course, after we've prayed and taken up the armor of God, we, we've spoken to Ephesians 6 in past messages, only a few weeks back, actually, but struggling in, in a failed or failing relationship, a bad job situation, coworkers that are giving you a hard time, a professor or a teacher that's punishing you for your Christian faith, experiencing failure again and again, marriage problems. Because again, as we look at 1 Samuel 17, for Israel, it was, it was a real giant. But for us, there's something in our lives that overwhelms us in the same way and maybe causes us to react a little bit the way Israel's armies and Saul did when God's calling us to something different, some of which we can see through David in 1 Samuel 17 and other parts we draw from elsewhere in Scripture for how God would have us to face the things that we just can't overcome and aren't overcoming on our own, those things that make us just want to give up. Maybe we already have. Well, I want to point out three things here before we move on to the rest of the chapter. First, we have to think right. Secondly, we have to choose love. And thirdly, we have to trust God. First, think right. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly. You can't put your hands on it but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The language here that Paul writes to the Corinthians with that he uses, it's, it's a language of warfare. It's this, it's this idea of weapons and enemies and, and strongholds being cast down. It speaks to the, the mental aspect of the struggles that we face. Whatever the situation, we need to align our thoughts and actions with the Word of God. And this place takes discipline and patience, choosing and purposing to allow our thought life to be brought into submission and subjection to the truth of God's Word. And once again, it takes discipline and it takes practice. It takes discipline because that requires that in our difficulty, we actually turn to the Word of God. It requires that we have a steady diet of God's Word in our lives. And it takes practice in that we have to learn to, to turn to and to purpose to think on what does God's Word have to say about this particular situation and about the way I'm handling and reacting to it. Am I, am I walking in the truth of God's word in the light of his word as we spoke of last week? Or am I leaning on my own understanding? It makes all the difference. Secondly, choose love. Matthew 5, 43. 
especially if what we're talking about in your life, if it is a person, a relationship, an individual. Well, Jesus has some contrary ideas for us about how we handle the Goliaths in our lives. And, and this is where we depart a little bit from David, because um, I, I don't know that David necessarily applies Matthew 5.43, but you and I are called to, all right? We're not literal soldiers fighting a battle. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that he may make his sun rise, excuse me, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemies. How radically does this affect our interactions with those with whom we're struggling, walking in real love toward them? And this isn't a love that we can conjure up on our own. That agape love that we're called to walk in, it flows from an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a love that comes in answer to prayer. And it's, it's a love that God provides when we're honest and humble before him. And we say, God, I don't love this person. I don't love this Goliath in my life. I don't love this, this individual who's presenting and producing struggle and conflict in my life. But you've called me to love my enemy. How it changes a circumstances, situation when we choose to walk in love towards those who are unloving. Thirdly, trust God. I believe we're to think right, we're to choose love, and we're to trust God. In 2 Chronicles 20.15, we find a powerful truth when King Jehoshaphat of Judah was facing an overwhelming enemy but had sought God. The Lord told him, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor be dismayed of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God, but God's. How many of us get it so wrong with the Goliaths in our lives because we're convinced that the battle belongs to me? This is mine to fight and and wrestle through. This is my war to win. I'm the one that needs to come up with the strategies. I'm the one that needs to come up with the counter moves. I'm the one that needs to protect my interests. I'm the one that needs to engage in all manner of strategies so I can gain the upper hand. When God has said, I want you to trust me. Some of you know where this story is going, but David's strategy, I mean, he, he you know, did what he could, but we could easily look at that and go, what in the world is he thinking? I'm sure Saul and his advisors could have sat and come, down, come up with a better idea, but sometimes the answers that God God's had for us, they're, they're relatively simple or, or they're counterintuitive. We'll never arrive at them if we don't learn to leave the battle in his hands. That's the funny thing about this whole facing your enemies and, and, and having the faith to trust God with the difficulties and the trials is, is sometimes it means you're not even fighting at all. It just means you show up for the battle. It means you're there and you're present, but you're trusting God in ways where others might look and you go, what are you doing? You're going to lose this thing. Well, God says sometimes 
when we lose in the ways that the world sees, we actually end up winning because then God can fight in ways that we can't. When Pharaoh had pursued Moses and the children of Israel to the Red Sea and it seemed like they were trapped, God, he assured them He assured Moses of his protection, and he told the people in Exodus 14, 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. I love that passage. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Some of us are so panicked and freaked out by that Goliath in our lives. We're running around like a chicken with our heads cut off, and the Lord's just like, would you just stand still and see my salvation? Would you just rest and trust me? The enemy that you see today, you'll see no more forever. I'm going to deal with this. We have to recognize that the battle is God's to fight. Ours is to trust him, to stand and wait for his salvation. And that requires some humility, doesn't it? Sometimes it requires us to close and to keep our mouths shut. Sometimes it requires us to lay aside our our ideas and our ways and our means and our strategy that we're so used to relying on in favor of letting God fight for us. Are you facing an enemy or, or an impossible situation that you're not sure you can handle or is definitely not going right. No idea how you're going to get through. You're pretty sure that you're going to fail or lose or you've already screwed it up somehow. Are you thinking right? Are you choosing love? Are you trusting God? Now, at this point in the chapter, David enters the story. The shepherd comes to the front lines. Verse 12, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his sheep at Bethlehem. Here we learn that David's three eldest brothers, they've already been called up for duty. They're on the front lines at this battle. And and David, he served Saul in the palace like we learned last week as sort of this itinerant, uh, sometimes worship leader for the king. But he would go back and forth as he was needed between the palace and the sheepfold. Verse 16, and the Philistines drew near, the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son, David, now take for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. So David was sent by his father as would happen, had happened, and uh, we would imagine during the course of this war to take sort of rations to them. In those days, there wasn't a mess hall and soldiers were more dependent on their own families to provide for them unless they won the war and then they got to enjoy the spoils. But um, needless to say, David would take them some supplies and then go back to his father and let him know how he was doing. Verse 18, and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Well, sort of. 
Uh, so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. So David leaves the sheep with uh, some responsible and capable hands, delivers the dried grain and the loaves of bread to his brothers, as well as these ten cheeses to the captain. Uh, Probably a treat on the battlefield, a little something extra special for him. David arrives, leaves his supplies then with the soldier that was in charge of it, and moves up to the front line to find out how his brothers were doing. And what does he find? But Israel and the Philistines shouting against one another, but not much else happening. Now, next week things are going to really heat up, okay? Today is really just the preparation for the main battle, and we'll, we'll end up seeing uh, that take place. But now we find out what David thinks of all of this, how to handle the giant. Verse 23, then as he talked with them, David, there was the champion. The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, what he had said before that we read earlier. Send out a champion from your armies to fight me. And all the men of Israel, when they saw him, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Hey, sounds good, right? Then David, who is just walking up, spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, what shall be done? David didn't hear about that part, but, but he sees Goliath mocking the armies of Israel and blaspheming, and he's asking, what, what is, what's going on here? Why is this being allowed to take place? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. And they explained what they had just been talking about, that he'll live tax-free and he'll receive the princess as a bride and have riches and all of this. Sort of this prize package the king put together because evidently he's pretty desperate. So he's like, all right, I'll give you my wife, who we hope is pretty. And uh, we don't know. Maybe the, maybe that's part of the reason the soldiers aren't stepping. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm adding to Scripture. I'm sorry. Verse 28, now Eliab, final three verses, his oldest brother heard when he had spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here, older brother, to the little brother? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? It's a good typical little brother response, right? He's, he's, you know, the brother's kind of picking on me like, what did I do? What have I done? Is there not cause? Don't I have a reason to be here and to speak up? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as did the first. Though Eliab was unaware, David had the heart and mind of a warrior. God had been preparing him for this moment. He'd been training him in his work of shepherding those 
few sheep that Eliab referenced. David had earned far more in his few years of shepherding than Eliab had in his many. And now David's asking what's going on. And, and what will be done for the one who stands up to and defeats this, this Philistine and meets his challenge? Because he's thinking about and confronting this threat. That's exactly what's going on in David's heart and mind. He's feeling called. God's stirring his heart to do something to fight. His focus is on dealing with his enemy, not worrying about what others think. For many of us, that's where the battle stalls out. This is where we lose. We give up before the battle even begins. We allow ourselves to be discouraged, listening either to discouragers in our lives, ourselves, or the enemy. And this is why, again, it's so critical that we approach our battles the way we spoke about earlier, that we're, that we're thinking right, that we're choosing love, and that we're trusting God. A new step of faith, the choice to fight instead of giving in to our enemy or the obstacle that we're facing will very often be met with discouragement and doubt. Have you experienced that when you're getting ready to take a step of faith or just a simple step of obedience, just saying yes to the Lord, just doing what you know you're supposed to do, but especially when it's something hard, there'll be that person that'll, that'll come in and 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 sort of have a word that sounds reasonable, but really would dissuade you from doing exactly what you know to do. And a lot of times, it's the hard thing. <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking about this as we're teaching right now, but I remember when our church, some of you were with us way back in the day. We used to be in Aliso Viejo, and, and we had a property that we really couldn't afford, and I knew that we needed to move, and it was very difficult, and it cost us <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and I remember there was a brother who met well, and I, I love him, uh, but I'm going to tell you his name so he really is embarrassed. No, I'm just kidding, and he's not here right now. But I remember him coming up to me and saying, you know, I really don't think we should move. I think we should just ride this out for what it's worth. And I just thought to myself, no, I'm, I'm not going to just give in to defeat and do nothing. We have to make a decision here. We have to take action, and it's drastic, and it's going to be costly, and not everybody's going to understand, and not everybody's going to come. And so we moved to Mission Viejo, and, and not everybody did come. <laughs> and, and, and we saw, though, the fruit from that decision. And, and what I love about that is ultimately it really became a, a small or maybe a large part in the bigger story of God, what God was doing in, in moving us to this side of the freeway. Because I'll tell you what, if Pastor Steve had come to me and we were still in Aliso Viejo and said, I think you should, we should merge churches and I'd like to go into kind of semi-retirement and Pastor Aaron, I want you to come and lead this church, it never would have worked. We had to get closer in, in order for it to not be as big of a leap. But there were multiple voices. He was not the only one. <laughs> other, other people I trusted and pastors that have been doing this a lot longer than I have who looked at it and said, eh, I don't know about this. I don't think this is going to work. And there are those times, though, where we have to obey the word of God. I'm not saying there, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, okay? This is more the exception, not the rule. But what I'm saying is there are times when some of those voices who are not waiting on God, they're not thinking right, choosing love, or trusting God, they're leaning more on their own understanding instead of what God's word is telling you, what God through his word by his spirit. And they would dissuade you to take another course. 
Sometimes what God calls us to do in facing our enemy, it's counterintuitive. You know what's going to happen. David looks crazy. A little, uh, uh, he's not a little boy, but he was a young man going up against a, a, a giant. Sometimes the thing that God tells us to do, it's, it's very much the same. And without God's help, it's absolutely destined to fail. But when he's in it, we experience victory. David was willing to face the problem, to stand, to explore the difficulty and what needed to be done about it. Sometimes because we're so paralyzed by fear and a determination that a thing is impossible, we won't even entertain the possibility that it can be done. David believed God was able and that liberated him to investigate What's the problem here, David's asking? What's on the line? I hear you guys are talking about a prize or something. What's going to be given to the man who, who defeats this giant? David's probably asking, again, because he's already decided in his heart to do it. What's on the line? Sometimes I, I know men and women in the body of Christ, and I, I think you're not facing this Goliath because you haven't considered what the cost will be if you continue to do nothing or give in. What failure is going to mean, the ripple effects, the fallout. We're, we're called to be a people who fight, and that looks different, right? I'm, I'm not talking always necessarily about a fight that could be defined that way from the standpoint of the observer. But David chose to trust God. This is going to become more clear next week, but obviously David is asking the questions he is because he believes that God is able, no matter the size or nature of the enemy. He's only getting started, but David defiantly had asked his fellow Israelites, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Why are we standing around doing nothing? To them, the answer was clear. He's a giant. To David, the solution was simple. Trust God, step out, and fight. It's intimidating and takes faith to decide to do these two things, but they're often where victory begins. Choosing to trust God, facing the problem, naming and owning what's really wrong, and then believing God is able to bring about the victory. This always precedes the actual battle. We won't win and we can't until we choose to trust and believe God. Now, David, years on from this point, will find himself in what may have been his lowest point and darkest day. He was living in exile with, his, with the Philistines, ironically. Some of you, you've studied 1 Samuel before and you know that there will be many difficulties in King David's life out into the future. Living in exile, as I mentioned, among the Philistines, his former enemies at that point. But they had rejected him and his mercenary armies. And raiders had stolen away their women and children, burning their camps. See, the crazy thing is, at this point, David was actually joining the Philistines to fight against Israel and King Saul. But the Philistines remembered who David was. <laughs> the one who had defeated Goliath, and they said, send this guy home. And on their way home, 
Smoke is rising from the city they were living in, Ziklag, and they found out that raiders had come and taken their women and children. And you know what happened? These, these men who had followed David into battle and had lived with him uh, among the Philistines, they turned and they looked at him and they said, you know what? Everything seems to always go wrong with you, David, and we're starting to think you're the problem. And in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, we read that David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. And what did David do? You can read it on the screen. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. God reminded him who he was. And God got hold of his heart in that moment. David in that desperate and dark place with the little faith he had left, seized on God's promises and stood on them rather than give in to despair and defeat. For David, this victory over over the, the Goliaths of depression, discouragement, and failure, it was the beginning of a new season of victory in his life. Ironically, at the moment, the people spoke of stoning him when it seemed like it was all over. In the next chapter, Saul dies. In moments, we would say, He's going to become the king and ascend to the throne. (laughs) It's in those times when we stretch out in faith rather than shrink back in the flesh and collapse into ourselves. It's when we face our problems and trust God that he meets us, that he leads us into victory. That's how we face the enemy. The problems are giants. We do it by the power of the Spirit because of our identity in Christ, knowing our sins are forgiven, that we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. As we end our message this morning, our time in the Word, of course, when you came in, there should have been a communion cup on your seat, and you can grab that now. Hopefully, if if it's maybe fallen on the floor behind it, you can, behind you, you can find it. But on the top layer of that cup, underneath the film is the bread, and then below that is the grape juice or the wine. But you can take out the bread, and we'll pray in a moment, and we'll take it together. But First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, that your aimless conduct received from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, For some of us, the Goliath in our lives is our past. Maybe it's the struggles that keep rearing their heads up from the past. Maybe it's a cycle or a pattern of sin and and defeat. We read here in 1 Peter that we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, that we are chosen, that we belong to him, that our identity is that of victor, not defeated and not failure. And for too many of us, we live under this mentality of failure, of sinner rather than saint. But the communion table declares to you and I that we have victory in Jesus Christ, that his blood was shed, that we might be cleansed and that we might live free. Free from our past free from our sin, that we might walk in victory against our enemies.
we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless the bread this morning as we hold it in our hands. It represents your body broken for us. Thank you that you came, that we might be redeemed, that you laid your life down on that Roman cross, that you were pierced. We pray that you'd bless this bread now as we take it in Jesus' name. Amen. Below that second layer is the, the grape juice, the wine. The precious blood of Christ, the, the blood of the new covenant, Jesus calls it when he initiated communion at the Last Supper with his disciples. It reminds us that Jesus came to set us free from our sin, to give us new life, that we wouldn't have to lay ours down because he did for us. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would bless this cup. We thank you that it represents forgiveness of sin, that we, when we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, would you bless this cup? As we receive it, we want to stand by faith in our identity in Jesus Christ. Our identity is victors. As saints, would you bless this cup in Jesus' name? Let's take the cup. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to lay his life down in our place. And I pray that in this coming week, Lord, not just this coming week, in our lives, God, that you would equip and enable and empower us to face the obstacles that are in our experience, God, the struggles that we battle with, the people, the circumstances, God, that we would do so from that place of victory, that we would do so informed by your word and empowered by your spirit, God, that you would help us not to, not to shrink back, Lord, in fear, but to stand, God, to walk by faith, Lord, to manage and engage those giants in our lives, God, as you would have us, as your word would direct us. Please, Father, would you do this work in us in Jesus' name?